0: So I'm going to do a cultural test for you to see how, how, um, how much culture, how much panache you have. And looking out across the crowd, I see very little panache, so I'm, I'm hoping, you know. Okay, sorry, I apologize. Listen to this phrase, this poetic two lines, and see if you can tell me who is the poet? I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. Anybody yet? Just wait. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. Who is the poet of that, those two lines? Walt Donna? You are the most poetic person here this morning. Walt Whitman. Now for many of us, this Walt Whitman, or for me at least, this Walt Whitman line became familiar because of a certain movie. Anybody know? Dead Poet Society there. That, that's a step down in, in really sharp. So if those of you who don't or do need a little bit of reminder where this came from, there was a moment where uh, Robin Williams was trying to bring this group of boys up in their their ability to appreciate good poetry. And Ethan Hawke was just kind of, he said, I don't don't have it done. I don't have a poem written. Robin Williams goes up to the chalkboard and he, he writes, I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. WW at the bottom. And he encourages Ethan uh, Hawke to come up and, and starts. He looks at a picture of Walt Whitman up there and, who is that man? What does he look like? And he gets him into this stir of being able to finally tell a poem. And from his heart, he lets out that kind of barbaric yelp the feeling, the emotion, the connectivity. Throughout history, this barbaric yelp is one of the things that is kind of has been characterized as a, a masculine act—the let it out, the letting it from the, the the toes on up, letting out that barbaric yelp—and it makes sense. Yelling is one of these inherently aggressive and often a prelude. To, and some kind of actual physical action. Maybe it's you're, you're mad at the mower and you don't know what to do with it. The darn thing will not start. And what do you do? You let out your barbaric yelp before you throw something at it. Right? It's out of this kind of emotion. In the Iliad, which was written by who? Thank you, good. (laughs) You know, more than the Dead Poets Society, good. Homer often describes the story's heroes in terms of their ability to let out a howl, a howl that would weaken the very knees of their enemies. Diotomies is called Diotomies of the Loud War Cry. And Menelaus and Odysseus are described as uttering a piercing shout. The Confederate soldiers in the American Civil War developed their own unique, terrifying battle cry to intimidate their enemy and boost even their own morale. Called the rebel yell, the rebel yell, one Union soldier said you, it would send a, quote, a particular, a peculiar corkscrew sensation that went up your spine when you heard it and quote if you claim you heard it and you weren't scared it means that you never heard it or what about the marines have you ever heard the marines hurrah and it seems like it can be a hello or let's go let's charge let's take this mount it's always the hurrah and it's in the minds of every young man or woman who is a Marine ever since they were in boot camp, and it is barked out almost every time you are in their presence. Even my brother, who was a Marine many, many years ago, you get the, hoorah, and I'm going, dude, you're a dad now. But it's kind of this call out. Sometimes these battle cries are kind of silly but at other times they they are totally and really meaningful and even emotional it stirs something in you in a moment they, they these battle cries serve as kind of this unifying vision for who we are what we are going to do and how we are going to handle any kind of adversity that is in our way it stirred up in the human spirit to push you forward. It is a charge to people who might often retreat out of fear, out of discouragement, or lack of vision. Our text this morning has a battle cry for the followers of Jesus Christ in a world in the midst of suffering. Romans 8:31 to 39 is what saints of God need to hear as they anticipate moments of great difficulty, moments of hardship and moments of pain. This text is for the graveside and the bedside. It is for those test results when you hear there's nothing more that we can do. It's for the persecution, it's for the accusations, it's for the opportunities for you to share your faith, and when friends mock you because of your faith, for those moments of fear and those those seasons of absolute uncertainty, and for anything that fits within this broken world, this text is designed to give us confidence that is rooted in the character and the grace of God so that followers will be hopeful, that we will be courageous, and that we will be unstoppable. So we've come to the end of Romans chapter 8, and Paul leaves us with probably one of the the greatest and most hope-filled promises in the Bible. This is the summit of the summit. And everything in Romans 8 has been moving us to this climactic moment. And verse 31, if you look at verse 31, it is the proposition that is set in the context of two questions. One of which is a rhetorical question, which is designed to have an obvious answer. Everything that follows is an explanation or an illustration of this main thought in verse 31. So what shall we say to these things? What do we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? The important truth that is expressed here is simply understandable by a child. And yet it is absolutely profound. Four words. God is for us. God is for us. That is the Christian's battle cry. God is for us. It's something that your soul, my soul, needs to be reminded of daily. In the midst of conflicts in the midst of trials in the midst of wanderings in the f- moments of fear Paul God is for you God is for you these four words are loaded with theological practical and emotional depth to say that God is for us means that everything Everything in God's sovereign plan, His redemptive acts, and the situations in our lives have been and will always be in accordance with His love for us. Whether the problem is our sin, or whether the problem is the suffering in this world, there is nothing in our past in our present, or in our future that is outside of God's loving intentions for us. God is for us. God loves us. He is for us. And everything in Romans chapter 8 is leading us to this point. So verse 31 begins by asking that question, what shall we say of these things? What what does Paul have in mind when he says, What shall we say of these things? I think that there are two contexts. First, it must mean the immediate context of what we have studied in verses 18 through 30 in regards to God's sovereignty, God's good care, His providence, and suffering. Remember, we were told to look at sufferings through the lens of that future glory, what will be coming. Hold on to that future hope. That's why we can even mourn very differently than how the world mourns right because there is that future glory that future hope we are all told to wait in patience anticipating that future glory we are told to be assured of our answered prayers and we are told to rest in God's absolutely certain plan if you remember Verses 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among his brothers. For those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. It is absolutely sure. God is working all things together for the good of his people and for the glory of God. So we can rest in those absolute promises. So last week, the central idea was Focusing in on the unbreakable nature of God's promises. Unbreakable nature of God's promises. There is nothing in God's plan that will break. And we need to hear that. So while last week it helped us understand the category of God's will, this week helps us with understanding the heart behind God's will the heart a biblical category for the sovereignty of god that doesn't not lead to fatalism when you know that embedded in the sovereignty of god is a deep deep love of god for his children is a beautiful thing and verses 31 to 39 help us to see that god is as loving as he is sovereign So secondly, we can also see this statement about all things refers to the rest of Romans 8 and the content content even of Romans 5 through 8 as Paul has unpacked the beauty of the gospel. So every ounce of hope that we are going to hear in this text has deep biblical and theological and emotional roots. And here, that... When I say the word emotional, that's a good thing. These roots, these emotional roots, these biblical truths, these theological truths should stir your heart. And if they don't, we need to do a heart examination. Every Sunday we have been in Romans has been part of building a biblical foundation upon which we live, especially when hard things come our way. God was using the Word to to build a robust understanding of the Gospel in you, your and my life such that we think differently when it comes to life's most difficult moments. In life's most difficult moments, God doesn't say, Run for the hills. He says, stay right here. Where my promises are unbreakable. And my love for you is unbreakable. Stay right here. So everything that we've studied in Romans is there to demonstrate over and over and over again that God is for us. Paul has spent much time building this kind of theological and biblical framework because it needs to be very strong and it needs to be dug very deep in light of the suffering on the outside and our own self-centeredness within. The gale force of the winds of a broken world are violent. Right? You can feel it in your day-to-day m- walking around, your day-to-day working, your day-to-day relational connections. There, The gale force of the, this broken world are strong. And our natural bias is to interpret everything in light of what we see and what we feel and what we think is fair. So we need this text to remind us. So in order to eclipse the trauma of suffering, in the internal narrative of self focus, you need a robust, gospel centered vision of who God is and what He has done. It needs to be robust, it needs to be thick, it needs to be unshakable. You need to know and believe with all of your heart that God is for you, He is. You need to remind hurting people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, God is for you. He is. You need to rehearse the gospel so that this truth is not just something that you know intellectually up here, but something that you feel and something that you can even sing. One of the many ways that music and singing helps us is that they link our theology with emotion right there, there were moments as we were singing this morning where I'm going okay I think I need to take a little break here because if I if I sing I'm going to start crying I don't know if you've ever had that where I'll say okay I get it oh here we go pull it together broom right that's what often happens and you need that combination of head knowledge and heart connection when you are suffering. If it is all just heart, we fall. If it's all just head, we are just emotionally and relationally disconnected and we serve as terrible counselors. Historically, it's not unu- it was not unusual for even martyrs of the church to sing on their way, to the execution. Michael Horton wrote this. It became so common for martyrs to spend their final time on earth singing God's praises as they passed by the watching crowds that the authorities this is going to be one of those grimacing kind of maybe too much information. The authorities who were going to execute them resorted to cutting out the martyr's tongues before they were escorted to the pyres, the stakes. Can you imagine on your way to the stake, to be burned, you were singing at the top of your lungs because your head and your heart got it. So to know God is is no for us is no matter what happens to us historically g- given uh, the church's confidence to love risky people, to reach resistant crowds, to joyfully endure trials, to, to sing while imprisoned, and to, to be that unstoppable force in God's kingdom. We, we need to believe in our heart, in our, in our heads that God is for us. As we reach out, as we take these, these courageous risks, as we talk about praying for, and inviting people even to VBS. Come on. This is not persecution, folks. God is for us. Who could be against us? God is for us is the fuel for missions. It is the fuel for ministry. It is the fuel in the midst of suffering. It is the fuel in the midst of persecution. It is the fuel for our countercultural living. So I want to give you three kind of hopeful implications or assertions from this. And it's going to kind of be the rest of this. Because so far we've only covered four words, God is for us. But those those words are the basis for everything else in our text. And I don't think it is the one thing uh, that is the one thing that we really need to hear when we're faced with all kinds of trials and difficulties. There's got to be more than just God is for us. So we're going to look at the rest of the passage. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, a Scottish man, and when he preaches, he preaches with gusto. He wrote a book called By Grace Alone. And he identifies four fiery darts. Fiery darts that Satan uses to unsettle us when, uh, when we're in the midst of stuff. They're meant to rob us of our assurance and rob us of our peace with god and here are the four darts that satan loves to shoot at us fiery dart number one god is against you he says he is not really for you how can you believe that he is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life really believer god is not for you in fact he's against you look around fiery dart number one have you ever felt that? In those moments of pain and wondering, where is God in the midst? He must be against me in this moment. So that's fiery dart number two. Fire, or fiery dart number one. Number two is, I have accusations to bring against you because of your sins. That's what Satan argues. What can you say in defense? Nothing. A sharp shot right at the heart. You say you're in Christ, let me give you a list. Where would you like me to start? Fiery dart number three that Satan says, you can say you are forgiven, but there is a payback day coming, a condemnation day, Satan insinuates. How will you defend yourself then? In other words, there's a reckoning day coming. Sure, you're forgiven now, yada, yada, yada. But wait, the list will become rolling out. Or fiery dart number four. Given your track record, what hope is there that you will preserve to the end? There's no way you're going to make it. Come on, you're doing good today. Tomorrow, who knows what's going to come? But the question for us is, will any of these things remove us from God's love? Is God's love for us so fragile? And Paul answers these questions, these fiery darts, with three assertions. Number one, since God is for us, no one, no one can successfully oppose us. Right? What shall we say to these things? As God is for us, who can be against us? Did he not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also also with him graciously give us all things? Man, no one is going to be able to oppose you. The effect of God's favor is that no other favor or disfavor matters. Nothing. There is no opposition when God is for you. There is something about the power that is being communicated right here. God's favor, God's love, God's grace trumps, trumps everything because there is no one or anything in the whole world greater than God. Nothing. But when we get caught up in the pain of our life, What becomes the greatest thing? The pain, the fear, the wondering. And God is sitting here going, are you serious? I've conquered the world. These things cannot stand against you. God is for you and no one can be against you because there is nothing greater and nothing more powerful than God himself. This is not a promise of the absence of opposition friends it's not a promise that opposition is not going to come your way because you are in christ jesus no it is a promise regarding the impotence the impotence of the opposition it has no power in your life god will vanquish his enemies that present themselves before the believers And I love this last, last, uh, after the questions, there in verse thirty one and thirty two, if God is for us, who can be against us? How does how does Paul respond? Let me show you. Let me show you the extent how God conquered the law, or conquered the sin, conquered the opposition. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all. God gave. He gave the greatest gift to destroy any kind of opposition. There's a great story by a man named Brennan Manning. When Brennan Manning was growing up, he had a best friend named Ray. And the two of them did everything together. They bought a car together as teenagers. They double dated together. They went to school together and so forth. They even enlisted in the army together. They went to boot camp together. And they fought on the front lines together. One night, while sitting in a foxhole, Brandon Manning was reminiscing about the old days with his friend Ray. And while they were talking together, Ray listened and ate a chocolate bar. Kind of ah yeah, remember that? Suddenly, a live grenade came into the foxhole. Ray looked at Brennan, smiled, dropped the chocolate bar, and threw himself on the live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray. But Brennan's life was spared. Years later, Brennan went to uh, visit Ray's mother in Brooklyn. They sat up late one night having tea when Brennan asked her this question. Do you think that Ray loved me? Kind of a foolish question to ask a mother, right? Ray's mother got up off the couch. She shook her finger in front of Brennan's face and shouted, what more could he have done for you? Brennan said that at that moment he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing at the cross of Christ, wondering, Does God really love me? And the answer coming back was, What more could he have done for you? The cross of Jesus is God's way of doing all that He could do for us. The evidence of God being for us is supremely manifested in the giving of His Son. He gave it all. Who can be against you? The answer is, no one. And now that we have the greatest gift, His Son, He will surely give us everything that we need. So that's the first assertion. Here's the second one. No one, because God is for us, no one will ever bring a charge against his elect, against his children. Who can bring any charge against his elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that can can condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that. Who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. So, the second implication of God being for us relates to our legal standing before God. Verses 34, 33, and 34 raise the issue of potential charges or condemnations being raised against the children of God. In other words, the underlying problem that is going on here of our sinfulness surfaces again either from others, from ourselves. There are, friends, there are a lot of bad things, a lot of bad things that people can say about me that are absolutely true. If you've known me long enough, you'll say, oh, i got a list, Paul. If you really know me, I mean, personally know me, or if you personally even know the thoughts of Paul, you go, i I got a lot of things that would disqualify you. You t- have a conversation with my wife. You have a conversation with my kids. I have a conversation with my close friends. They're going to go, yeah, I've got a list of con- condemning things against Paul. Many of which I will blush. Many of which I will cower and want to just run and hide. Anyone who knows me can deliver all kinds of charges against me. Faults in my character. Things that I've done that I I didn't want to do, but I did do. Careless things that I've said. And there's more. And all these charges are absolutely, forensically true. But none of them can stick. None. R. Kent Hughes says this. If accusations are brought against us, we need not fear. For the charges are silenced by the upraised, pierced hands of our intercessor. If we are condemned, it will have to be over Christ's dead and now resurrected body, which actually is the basis of our salvation. So the hope of this passage, friends, is that the verdict in the case of the followers of Jesus Christ, has already been rendered. You are not guilty. Not guilty. God has already declared you to be forgiven. You're forgiven. After all, it was God who justified. Not you. Not your, your my parishioners. Not my my friends, not my wife, not my children who justifies me. It's God who justifies me. And what's more, Christ has fully paid for that sin and was raised from the dead and, and signaling the completion of his work. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning. It's done. You're justified. Jesus' death paid sin and his resurrection affirmed that it was accepted by God and this passage says that no charges none zip zero none zilch nada none of them will stick against you because God has dealt with them on Good Friday it's done and he has declared us on Good Friday as not guilty done done no one will condemn us on the day of judgment. You're not going to stand before God, and God goes, "Oh, Paul, Whew! You guys just well sit down for a little bit because it's going to be long. Yeah, on the day of judgment, God isn't going to be saying, "Listen, I've got a bunch of things to bring up." Jesus will defend us on that day of saying there is no charge, not guilty, no accusation will prevail against you and that should move you forward in your movement there's no 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 condemnation zero thirdly because god is for us nothing and no one can successfully separate you from the love of christ of love of god in christ jesus no one nothing can separate you. Paul writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's kind of one of the silly questions. Paul's going, really? Who, who, after everything that I've said, who's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or or nakedness? Some of us go nakedness. Uh, Danger or the sword? No, in all these things, we are more than just conquerors. Through him who loved us in other words you don't have to fight to do all these things to stay in the love of christ you're more than conquerors for i'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ we have one last crash question here and it is the most emotional question it is the thing that we all long, long for right We want to be loved, right? Every one of you is longing to be loved. You want the warm embrace. And here, this most emotional question is, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? This question is related to the strength, to the commitment, and to the durability of Christ's love. Is there anything greater or is there any other way for a relationship to be destroyed? Paul looks around at everything and anything that can separate us from the love of God and he throws out the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario out there that could threaten God's love. Death will not separate us from from the love of God. That final day is not going to separate you from the love of God. Neither will anything else in this life. No cosmic powers, unseen powers out there will separate. Uh, Not anything within me will separate me from the love of Christ. No disappointment, no neurosis will separate you. No disease, no broken relationship, no financial crisis, no mental illness will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And Paul wants us to know that there is not one stinking realm or one power or one authority or one creature or one dominion, one other kingdom that will separate us us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He wants us to feel the very weight of of, of a sovereign God who, who rules over all of creation and who loves us with a power that is unbreakable and absolutely eternal. He wants you this morning to feel that weight. God is for us. And he wants us to be sure that we understand and that we believe that the work of redemption in and through Jesus is the most powerful reality in the universe. God's love for you, friends, hear this, because I think some of you need to hear this, God's love for you has no outer limit. None. You can't break the love of God. You're going to screw up 10 minutes after you walk. Well, I'll give you a minute. You're going to walk out of here and you're going to screw up. Some of you are relationally going to vomit. Some of you are going to sexually vomit. Some of you are going to vomit financially. And you're going to wonder yourself and you're going to have all those fiery darts shot at you and you're going to start wondering. And Jesus is saying, listen, God's love for you has no outer limit. There is... There is very little in this life, friends, that cannot be broken. Everything around us is fragile. Everything. But the death, of the resurre- resurrection of Jesus Christ means that two things are true. God's purposes are for us and unbreakable. And God's love for us is absolutely unbreakable. His purposes and His love. To be in Christ Jesus our Lord is to be always loved. So you're feeling unloved? You're feeling unlovable? The question that we have to look back at is, is there anything that's going to separate us from the love of God? And the answer is, answer is a resounding no. No be in Christ Jesus means that no matter what happens in life or in death, God is always for you. Always. And if God is for you, nothing can be against you. So if you are here today, hear this. If you are here today and, and not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not given your life, in totality to Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to see the very power of what coming to faith in Jesus Christ really means. Sin causes this huge chasm, this huge separation from God, and this text shows us the beauty and the safety for those who have turned from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that God takes on sin. And makes us righteous. It makes us right. It makes us holy. We stand before God as if we have never sinned. We wear the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at us, because we have put our faith in Christ, God looks at us and He says, It's my child. It's my son, my daughter. He takes our suffering. And He makes us victorious. Because God is for us. This also means that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you need to be reminded today, today, that in every situation in your life and in death itself, God is for you. You need to be reminded, maybe you need to get out uh, some kind of uh, dry erase marker and put it on your mirror. God is for me and let it out every morning with some kind of barbaric yawp where your kids go, what is up with dad? God is for me. Paul, remember that. No matter what I face when I leave this house, no matter what I face when I go to work, no matter what I face at night or in the hospital or with the diagnosis that I get, no matter what I get relationally, God is for me. This, this biblical charge, the biblical charge to you and what you need to know before you risk your reputation, your dreams, and your comforts or your life is this. No matter what, God is for you. Period. There's no successful opposition whatsoever. There's no eternal condemnation. And there is no separation from his love. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are untouchable. Because of His eternal, sovereign, reigning, and redeeming love, God is for you. Walt Whitman, though not talking about this, says, I sound my barbaric yalk over the roofs of the world. Friends, this is our battle cry. So as we leave and we go into mission, as we go back into the relationships and the work that God calls us to be a part of, remind yourself, there's nothing that's going to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And may that give you courage and strength as you go. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray.